improve their communication skills so they can help more people and help people more. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Harvey. I'm a chiropractor and I'm an expert in communicating the value of chiropractic so that you can help more people and help people more. Welcome to episode 14 of Under the Influence. Thanks for those of you who have been sending through suggestions and comments about the podcast i really appreciate the feedback the one kind of downside of a podcast is that it it, you're sort of talking into a vacuum you don't get that immediate feedback that you get when you're speaking to people live or even when you're teaching programs on a webinar so keep the feedback coming i've got a bunch of suggestions that i'm sort of kind of questions in terms of challenges that people have had with communication that I will be addressing in upcoming solo episodes. Uh, Looking at the statistics in terms of how many people are listening to the podcast, it looks like it's kind of equal where uh, I've got about the same number of people listening to an interview with another chiropractor as I do when I do a bit of a breakdown on uh, an individual topic or communication strategy. So I'm gonna keep at this stage sort of mixing it up uh, would love to hear your thoughts in terms of what you prefer, whether you want me to do a bit of both or whether you would prefer just one or just the other. Um, so before I get into this week's episode, a little bit of an update. I asked for feedback in terms of doing some of the improving patient care information as an online program and I had a bunch of people say that they were super keen for that. Uh, Other people were saying, look, I'd probably just hang out for when you can do it in person here in Australia. I can't see me being able to do it internationally over the next 12 months. So uh, I'm going to do a bit of both. So I'm going to do a version of it online. Watch for that being released soon. And I'm also going to be doing it in person because I think from a skills development perspective being able to not just understand a concept but be able to apply it nothing really beats that in-person experience. So this week I am super excited to introduce a chiropractor that I have a huge amount of respect for. I first got to know Dr. Eric Russell when he came to New Zealand as the president of New Zealand College of Chiropractic. He's got a really interesting background that you'll hear more about through the podcast, but he's been in clinical practice. He's uh, one of the the first uh, philosophy diplomats and has a deep and uh, abiding love and understanding of chiropractic philosophy and the value of it and the value of, I guess, the intellectual, applying intellectual rigor to our philosophical understanding. Um, He's got a real love for helping chiropractic students. He's been New Zealand College, Parker College. He's now at Life College in Atlanta, Georgia. So please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Eric Russell. Hey, Eric, great to see you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Martin, it's always a pleasure to see you. You're one of my favorite all-time chiropractors, and I love the chance we got a chance to connect here. Well, likewise, I was, I was just trying to work out how long is it since we've we've had a, a decent chat? Like when, when was the last time? Oh, it may 
thing and a little embarrassed to admit it, maybe going on seven, eight years. Yeah, it's been, it's been a while, that's for sure. So now tell, let's do like a really, really quick, um, I know I said I wouldn't do this, but we'll do a really, really quick, where are you from? What are you doing? So you're currently at Life University, is that correct? Yep. I started yep. at Life University in March of uh, this year. And my Fantastic. job is currently a consultant. So um, when I became available, Life University is like, we want you to join us. We'll figure it out. <laughs> wow. So they to come. And I do administrative work for the university for Dr. Scott and uh, Dr. Tim Gross, who's the provost or executive yep. vice president. And then I also, they said, well, we also want you to teach one philosophy class. Uh, Dr. David Koch is starting to step down into retirement. And they asked me to take over his quarter one philosophy class. So here wow. I find myself in teaching uh, chiropractic philosophy, which is something I've kind of always done, but haven't done in a while. So I'm looking forward to diving back into it. Oh, fantastic. So quarter one, how is it to... Because I know, uh, just by way of background, part of the the reason that we know each other is from when you first, when you were out in New Zealand running the New Zealand College of Chiropractic, and um, then, you know, I guess the the speaking that I've seen you do on a professional basis, which if people haven't caught you speak, they've missed out on one of the most uh, sort of nuanced, thoughtful, evocative chiropractic philosophy speakers going around. So make sure you catch uh, Dr. Russell next time he's speaking professionally. Um, but there was very much a philosophy, your background, you did, you were a diplomat, you are a diplomat uh, of chiropractic philosophy, and that's very much a focus of you. So of yours. So how is it to go sort of back from deep dive into philosophy back to quarter one? Well, it's, it's been unique because, um, now, I taught philosophy before I went to, when I started as a faculty member in 2008 at Parker, uh, they had me teach chiropractic philosophy. And that was my big transition out of, you know, 10 years, more than 10 years, but 10 years in private practice into teaching. And that was really something that was difficult for me because all my identity was wrapped up into being a practitioner. Like how, many, how many people you serve in your community? What impact you have in your community, et cetera. And then when I started teaching chiropractic philosophy and falling in love with philosophy was kind of not what I thought I was going to do. Um, my whole background there was um, probably a year after I graduated. I graduated in 1996 from Palmer College, started an associate position while I was waiting for my wife, Yvonne, to finish her PhD. And probably a year, I mean, you're talking only a year into practice, kind of feeling a little burnout, kind of like, where's this going? Why do you see so many chiropractors in love with chiropractic philosophy or with chiropractic and then other people aren't? And it was those that had a good understanding with chiropractic philosophy, in my opinion, are the ones that knew who they were, what the profession was and how they could serve. And those are the ones that were, you know, you see chiropractors literally on fire, happy to go to work every day versus those that felt like it was a job and kind of resented it. And that started my dive into chiropractic philosophy. That's so that's um, interesting. It wasn't yeah. some, I always pictured that you'd be, you know, I was one part of the philosophy club at Palmer College and those sort of things, but it was more just you almost reverse engineered your way into investigating philosophy. Is that? Yeah, I, you know, I was always kind of a, always consider myself a hot mess in progress. So, <laughs> 
you know, I, I got, I got married when I was super young, got divorced when I was super young and had custody of my daughter and my parents helped raise, raise my daughter. Um, so I was trying to, you know, date again, find my life again, you know, during all that time. So it just took me a while to figure my, whoops, what we got going on here? Sorry, Martin, something just rebooted here. Go ahead. No, no, that's okay. We can, I can hear you fine. So if it's, if you're okay, we can just keep going. Okay. Um, yeah, sorry. My computer just said, Hey, wants to detect the audio again. So, um, I put in a headphone that didn't work. So, um, I basically, uh, took a while for me to find out what my path in life was. And then once I started chiropractic school, I always had to manage that long distance relationship with Yvonne, long distance relationship with my daughter and my parents who are in the same area, and then still trying to be a chiropractic student and, and all of those things. So my focus in chiropractic school was just was technique. I was a gondroid. Yeah. I was like, want to be the best adjuster I could be. That's what was important. Didn't, if it didn't fit what I cared about. I was just trying to get through. So I was that student I don't want to have today uh, in the true irony of everything. So I caught the passion for chiropractic philosophy later um, and then changed and pivot my course. Um, I had no idea that the the topic that I'm most passionate about that I think is central to chiropractic is so divisive within the profession, so controversial within the profession, so politicized within the profession. And uh, it's, it's a cause that I've devoted my life to, but it's, it's been an interesting journey. It's taken me to New Zealand, to back to Texas, now at Life University, the preeminent vitalistic college in the world. So it's just been a, an incredible, wild journey. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the path along that journey, um, this this podcast called Under the Influence, I'm sort of curious to understand some of your influences. So you came into uh, an interest in chiropractic philosophy, and then that's obviously then completely altered the path of your professional and personal life ever since. So what has been most influential or perhaps what was influential early in that, whether it's a people, whether it's people or books or articles or whatever else I'm, I'm looking at, we've got this audience here, some of whom will be completely immersed in philosophy and others who may be a little bit like you at, um, at graduation where they're sort of aware of it, but they may not have gone on the deep dive that you have. You know, I, <clears throat> I think what's important when you discuss chiropractic philosophy is knowing the difference between what it is and what it's not. Um, I tell students all the time that chiropractic philosophy, um, only chiropractors make it weird. It's not weird to lay people and anybody I've ever discussed chiropractic philosophy with, just with chiropractors. And so when I started thinking about chiropractic philosophy, I was very fortunate when I started to search for answers that I ran into two chiropractors, uh, Dr. Rob Sinnott, and Dr. Norris Erickson. Um, I met Dr. Sinnott my last year while I was in at Palmer. Uh, just happened to take care of him and Dr. Brad Pope, who's also a philosophy diplomat and a brilliant, brilliant philosopher. Um, just ran into him by happenstance. And they came into the clinic. I got to adjust him for outpatient credits. Wow. And they asked, they asked me about the 33 principles. 
And honestly, uh, Martin, I didn't know what they were talking about. I mean, I went to school at Palmer, 33 principles probably was around, but I wasn't emphasized. Palmer tenants were kind of emphasized at that time. Just wasn't exposed to them, you know? And, and instead of shaming me, instead of guilting me, Dr. Sinnott's like, ah, oh, there's in this book called Stevenson's textbook, you know? And, and later, Dr. Norris Erickson always carried a, a case of Stevenson's textbooks in his car. And, <laughs> you know, just, just by chance, it's an imitation. Here you go, look into it. So once I decided I wanted, you know, later after I graduated and decided I want to look into chiropractic philosophy, I contact Dr. Sinnott. It's like, I want to learn more. Um, and that's probably part of the initiation is that willingness to say, hey, I want to learn. I mean, I've never turned anybody away that comes to me and said they want to learn more, but I stopped forcing myself on people that don't want to learn yeah. a long time ago. So Dr. Sinnott was very instrumental. Um, probably in one, helping my philosophical understanding, two, teaching me what it's like to be what I consider a chiropractor. Um, he had a huge appreciation, still does, for chiropractic history, for those that's, that served before us, that sacrificed to get to where we are today, the philosophy of chiropractic, and was always willing to answer any questions. Um, so of the so influences, go ahead. Just, just, I guess, if, uh, to flesh that out, Dr. Sinnott is, the, is a well-known chiropractic speaker and is the author of a couple of books on chiropractic philosophy as well. So, um, again, if, if, would you recommend them as a starting point for people who are interested in taking this journey? Highly recommended. Rob's one of the most brilliant minds in chiropractic philosophy, period. Yeah, yeah. go on. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, and, and very humble. Um, so yeah, just that's where I cut, I cut my teeth in Illinois. Um, you know, I was associating and just kind of biding my time while I was waiting for Yvonne. So I got involved in chiropractic politics, got involved in the ICA, got involved in Palmer Alumni Association. Probably two or three years after I graduated is when Dr. Guy Reekman became president of, of Palmer. And yep. one of the things that Dr. Reekman did was brought in like people like Dr. Fred Barge to campus yeah. to help polymerize the campus. And that's when Dr. Reekman and Dr. Barge started the Legion of Chiropractic Philosopher degree. That was that first year, 100 hour, one year certificate program. And we all took it. So myself, uh, Dr. Norris Erickson, Dr. Brad Polk, Dr. Dan Lyons, Dr. Lance Lorfield, some of these people that are kind of the philosophy people today, we all took that together because we were on fires fizzed up about wanting to learn more. So that program was started by Dr. Fred Barge. He created it, created the, um, basically the curriculum for the program. And after we went through it, we all loved it so much. We're like, where's this going? We decided to then make the diplomat through the ICA. So later the LCP isn't inactive and there's been two or three other year one certificates, the ACP through Sherman, um, I brought the ACP to New Zealand in conjunction with Sherman, and then there's an SCP, but that's kind of the formulation of, so it's kind of like what influenced me was number one, that desire to learn. Um, how, like, why were so many people so fired up about chiropractic and on fire? And I wasn't, was the main thing. The influences were, you know, for my philosophical influences, I'd say that Dr. Rob Sinnott, Dr. Fred Barge by far and yeah. Dr. Reggie Gold were probably yeah. the big three that taught yeah. me. Uh, Reggie wasn't necessarily in person, 
but Reggie's 12 hour CD set, <laughs> I still listen to that today. Yeah, I remember my first associate position. I was living in Sydney, but practicing in Wollongong, which is about an hour away. And I had the 12, he had the 12 hour philosophy, and then he also had the 12 hour practice building sort yep. of companion set. And I just, wore the crap out of those recordings just driving back and forward at this hour hour and a quarter drive just every day regiizing my brain martin i just found the 12 i i loaned mine out a long time ago to a student who never returned it yeah but and now the pro tip is always take a photo of the student holding the item they're borrowing and keep it on your phone but i found uh because i can't find them anymore but i found one on sale and on Facebook Marketplace and bought it. And I've just been listening to it in the car. And one of the biggest thing about Reggie Gold's CD is like, every, I stand in front of class, I'm lecturing. I think I have this great point. I'm like, man, I finally get this concept. And I listen to the Reggie Gold CD and I'm like, oh, that's where that came from. That's exactly, I've been carrying this idea around from Reggie's CDs and I'm thinking it's my own concepts, but in reality, it's Reggie's seed that's like finally germinating and taking hold. it from the grave. Yeah. So if we, so again, just if we can, unfortunately, both uh, Dr. Barge and Dr. Gold have passed away, but um, we've spoken about Reggie's recordings. If you can get access to them, phenomenal way of fleshing out your understanding of chiropractic philosophy. Um, there's also, but Dr. Barge wrote one of the, the best chiropractic philosophy um, books that I think particularly if you're early into it, Life Without Fear is just really worthwhile getting and re- very easily available, um, you know, on, through chiropractic uh, college bookstores or, you know, you can probably get it on Amazon, I would imagine. But, um, yeah, sorry, go on. So, no, uh, Dr. Black Barge is uh, truly, truly, I'm kind of, you know, Dr. Barge showed me and taught me that you didn't have to be just in practice. I mean, he was a true Renaissance man. Yeah. He had, a, he was the, one of the best speakers I've ever heard. Very Shakespearean, great orator. He was also kind of a man's man and a uh, the most interesting man in the world at the same time. So you could be a Dr. Barge at, with him. You'd have something that kind of debonaired himself, whether it be yeah. a mask, a tie or something, always dressed to the nines. Because to him, you represented chiropractic at all times. And your success yeah. was very much. In, and then you have like, you know, there's a couple of times we were out after a meeting. We were having a libation, as he'd like to say it. And I remember sitting there and all of a sudden this blinking light at the end of his cane would turn on and he would hold it up and the waitress would come and bring him another beer. You know, <laughs> how, how cool are you? Just how cool are you? So it's like, you know, just that person that was an accomplished author. He was an inventor. He was a, his family, I believe was, he might be third generation his daughter's fourth, and then he had two granddaughters that graduated from Palmer not too long ago. And that family has a prolific history with, with chiropractic and just taught me you didn't have to just be a practitioner and there's nothing wrong with that, but it just wasn't ever in my cards. Um, yeah. I, I think I want to help serve the profession. And that's was Dr. Barge was the key to kind of say, hey, you can do that if you yeah. want 
Yeah, no, and he was, I remember him as a speaker just being this, he was a performer as well as a speaker, just it was almost like a one-man show when he was when he was speaking, just, yeah, amazing, amazing man. And I also think he could capture some of that in his writing if you were, you know, not able to be around at that time. Um, so then you've caught fire, I guess, with the chiropractic philosophy and then um, you there's a bit of a leap now. So that's like late 90s, you're doing your Legion of Chiropractic Philosophers, but then we've got the date of 2006, was it, to the, that you started uh, teaching at Parker? What was the intervening period? 2008, I apologise. Yeah, so in between there, what was the journey? Well, the... You know, the LCP, I think it really started in 2000 and then did the, so up until 2002, um, I was associating in Illinois waiting for Yvonne to finish her PhD. And my agreement, my wife is a, um, a PhD in sociology. She's a dean at a university. Um, we met in college before any of this journey started for me in chiropractic. Um, she just decided to study chiropractors because that's what her crazy boyfriend was doing or fiance was doing. Um, and Yvonne has, has had quite a few publications of chiropractic and has made quite yeah. an influence. Um, but, you know, again, I think she was only exposed to the version of chiropractic that I was exposed to instead of the yeah. whole version of chiropractic. So the agreement between Yvonne and I were that basically whatever university she got hired at when she finished her PhD, I would follow her and start a practice from scratch. So in 2002, um, she had a couple of choices and then she ended up picking a town in Commerce, Texas. You know, she still has at that university, the uh, Texas A&M Commerce. And it's a town about maybe 10,000 students and 10,000 people. So when I moved there, I thought I was moving- It's an to interesting distinction. That yeah. students aren't people. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just, it's, you know, when I moved there, I thought we were moving to a small college town and we ended up moving to a small East Texas town with the, with the college mm -hmm. was kind of the thing. So, you know, the Got thing it. about Texas is kind of funny. Texans are very proud of their state. Um, uh, they love to say, they love to remind you if you're not from around there. Um, I always joke, Martin, I hope you don't take this wrong, but they act very Australian. Uh, they love yes. to give you some grief and yeah. they, and unless you know, to give it back, they kind of yeah. view it as a weakness. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I remember moving to town, didn't know a soul was going around, handing out business cards and people are like, uh, well, you're not from around here, <laughs> like, no. <"Okay."> you know, <laughs> yeah. and then and it just so-and-so it just, just took, you know, and I finally just remember being like, there's some law in town that, you know, you can't have an out-of-state chiropractor, you know, or just something I just yeah. got fed up. And they're like, oh, you're all right. You know, once I kind of stood up for myself. So yeah, I got known in the town, served in the town, served on every board I could, served on, you know, it's the same thing you do if you move to any town and you don't, any, don't know anybody and you have a practice. You throw yourself into the community. It's a very yeah. open community. It's just different than what I grew up in. Um, so I, I basically was there from 2002 to 2008, had a practice. Um, I think the pivotal thing for me is I always joked, remember, see, we can't, we talk about things in chiropractic that don't even exist anymore, but remember wet developing your film yeah, through yeah. the processor. Yeah. 
So I always joke with students, I'm like, what you think about when you are developing an x-ray and you're, you know, basically you're a prisoner in that room, yeah. whatever you think about is what you're passionate about. I know chiropractors yeah. practice so they can play golf. Yeah. I know people that have humongous practices that are just obsessed with thinking about where's my next new patient coming from? I got this new patient acquisition idea. I've always thought more about the profession and the students than I did my practice. I love my practice. I was happy with my practice. So, but I just, I don't know. I just, I just remember being lost and I remember figuring things out and just want to pass that knowledge on. So that's what got me into teaching. That's when they were like, Hey, do you want to come teach? I was like, I don't know. I don't, I didn't, I don't think I was a great student. I don't know how I'd be a great teacher. Is kind of what I thought, but um, when I asked my wife about it, her answer was kind of like, duh. And then yeah. when I asked, uh, I remember asking Dr. Gilles Marsh yeah. what he thought. He's like, duh. You know, everyone's like, this is what you're destined to do. And I just took me a while to kind of get out of my practice identity. And yeah. so I spent the next two years uh, teaching full time at Parker, uh, which is 120 kilometers away from where I lived and practice. I'd get up early in the morning, go teach all day, and I'd come home and I'd keep my practice open at night, um, maybe eight hours a week, you know, just seeing about 80 people in eight hours, just trying to crank it out. And then all that was just kind of continuing on a path where I was burning the candles at both ends. And then all of a sudden, um, actually, Yvonne, Yvonne, Brian Kelly asked Yvonne to speak in New Zealand. Yeah. After after Yvonne gave a presentation at ACRAC, I believe in 2005, six, maybe. So, yeah. And then Yvonne and I went over to New Zealand. She was asked to speak at New Zealand, not me, because I'm just another chiropractor and she's a yeah. PhD that studies chiropractic. And that's and how she just, on. if I can just push pause there, because <laughs> I'm guessing that uh, there are people who may not have read some of Yvonne's articles, but she writes, it's really, I find them incredibly interesting where she writes in this really incisive, observant way about the sort of internal machinations of the profession. And in particular, I guess the sort of strategies that I'm thinking in particular of one article, but the name of which I've forgotten, but it, she writes particularly about how that more sort of, uh, a reductionist side of the profession has used a series of sort of manipulating the information strategies to paint the more vitalistic part of the profession or the the part that um, has a focus on developing and understanding the philosophy. They paint them in using terms like pseudoscience and unscientific and irrational, essentially saying that it's not logical to think in the way that uh, perhaps a vitalistic perspective. Is that a reasonable way of sort of pricing some of those articles? Yeah, you know, Yvonne decided to study um, chiropractic as her PhD dissertation. She looked at the um, interplay historically from the beginnings of the profession to current day of what she considered uh, entrepreneurship versus professionalism yeah. and how those kind of played out. And I think chiropractic is needed both. Um, but she would talk about how, you know, B.J. Palmer would take an elephant through a city streets, you know, in the parade versus us getting white coats and just all that. Yeah. Interplay. At Yvonne's heart, she's a sociologist. 
Yeah. And she's a qualitative researcher, you know, and so I think those things come pretty predominant in her writings. Um, definitely, I've caught up a long time later, but, um, you know, she studied chiropractic because that's what I did. And she was around Dr. Barge, myself, Dr. Sinnott. And when she was asked to start writing about chiropractic, it was through a sociological lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she also wrote in the top sociological medical sociology journals, not in chiropractic journals. So it did kind of touch on evidence and what evidence is and what do we accept as evidence, et cetera. And it's just basically through the sociological lens of a qualitative researcher. Yeah. Um, the problem is, as you know, that um, not everyone thinks that qualitative research is valid. Yep. You know, so that's why her topic was controversial. Um, I'll tell you, Martin, I remember her going to her first big, she got invited to speak, I think by Dr. Bill Meeker at uh, ACRAC, and she went by herself, you know, and, and I just remember her calling me and she's like, um, I don't know what this is. This chiropractic is different than what, you know, just, she just was exposed to the completely different side of the profession or, you know, and, and got out of the bubble a little bit, yeah. but, but at academic conferences, uh, you know, it, her viewpoint wasn't necessarily the predominant viewpoint. So I think Yvonne was famous for saying on day two of the conference, she's like, why is this day two? And I'm the first person to talk about subluxation and innate intelligence, which I think immediately split the room. You know, I think she had the vitalist side clapping and the other side, like, who is this, you know, person, et cetera. So that started her speaking to her. You know, she was part of the initial uh, Rubicon here at Life University. Dr. Rieckman asked her, she spoke in Canada, she spoke in New Zealand. That's kind of what got Yvonne kind of did her speaking tour throughout the profession. Got it. And so where I took us off on that little uh, detour, you were saying that Brian Kelly had invited, who was at that time the president of New Zealand College, invited, well, Yvonne and you as the hanger-on. The plus one, uh, yeah. The plus one, yeah, (laughs) uh, to visit New Zealand. And so what did you think when you got to New Zealand? Well, it was just, you know, the New Zealand is always special um, to me and because you, you'd hear about the school and the amount of buzz that school has is something that's, that's unreal. Um, Brian did a fantastic job of putting that school, you know, it wasn't just Brian, but very much positioning that school and engaging with the professions that the small school in, in an island in the South Pacific can, can have such a reach and reputation within the profession. And there's lots of people that contributed to that, but that's what put probably New Zealand on the radar. We went there, loved our time there, you caught up with the energy, it was for a lyceum and, you know, they like to cut loose and have fun. And it was just kind of felt almost like a honeymoon when we were there. It was just so gorgeous, so fun. Everyone was in love with chiropractic. Everyone was, you know, it's just a great place to be that um, later, I had no idea when we were there that I'd eventually be president of that institution. So um, like I said, from 2008, started at Parker and was just teaching. It was like, where is this going? And then the opportunity came up in New Zealand when Brian stepped down that I applied. And uh, by luck, I was named president and, and joined there in 2011. And that's when I met you guys and ASRF and all the brilliant people there. 
And um, th- another little detour here that I understand <laughs> that uh, your time in Australia and New Zealand also had an impact on your coffee consumption, which is a, oh, very, yeah. big, <laughs> a very big theme of Under the Influence. So uh, let, let's rewind. What was coffee before you came to New Zealand? Oh, I'm embarrassed. Thank you. Um you know, well, coffee. this is part of the mission of the podcast is I sort of figure that uh, we've got to swing everybody over to the right side of this perspective. How, how would I describe it? Coffee, coffee pre-New Zealand was about quantity. Yeah. So what you do is you pull into it. This I'm going to give you the worst case scenario, Martin, because I'm hoping to make you just uncomfortable. If you pull into a truck stop, you yeah. get a 32-ounce bad, bitter, burnt, watered down coffee. So in order to make it taste good, you put tons of sugar and artificial creamer and whatever else you throw into it to basically make it a a sugary drink. And then you sip on that all day. And that was kind of like, it was all about the quantity, quantity of bad coffee. And then once I got to New Zealand, oh God, I'm embarrassed to admit all this. But once I got to New Zealand, it's like, you can't find bad coffee. You, no. you can. But I would go to Dunkin' Donuts. Um, and I would ask for an American coffee, which I don't know. It's basically an Americano, but I don't know what they did to make it semi-passable. I even remember going to the U.S. store. They have one of those U.S. stores over there <laughs> to find coffee creamer. You know, just wow. to have that. Yeah. And then finally... Um, through the persistence of some friends. And then we even had an espresso truck that would come by the campus. It was just slowly, you had to, you had to start drinking the coffee to learn what, you know, to get coffee. So I would go from a long black with, you know, a shot of heavy cream in it. And then basically went to short blacks. Um, I never could do a lot of milk, like flat whites, Yeah. Um, and then eventually just got to shots of espresso. So the, the yeah. transition has been from massive quantities of bad coffee to how good can you make a shot of coffee? Oh, yeah, I, I laugh about it because I remember when, when you were very early in New Zealand, you'd come over to um, Australia and I, you were in Melbourne and I picked you up and I took you to yep. St. Ali. And so St. Ali is... In terms of like you, they talk about waves in coffee, there's and in terms of this sort of uh, idea of really high quality uh, espresso coffee, kind of ground zero for a lot of that worldwide is Melbourne, and in particular, yep. um, Saint Ali was a cafe that's been incredibly influential in the coffee world in Australia and around the world as uh, that sort of head to the US and the UK, et cetera. And um, so I took you to, and St. Ali, interestingly, is the patron saint of coffee. So um, yep. we were in a, a very, very reverent place. And I remember you you'd sort of go, all right, now, Martin, you're going to help me out here. Like, go through <laughs> this menu and tell me what is the difference here. This is what I'm trying to, and I think I must have caught you right on that tipping point of going, I know there's something here, but I do not understand it at all. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I had a good friend of mine that I'm not a great wine aficionado, but I remember a friend of mine just putting just little Dixie cups in front of me and just saying, tell me what you like, forget labels, forget anything else, just taste these different wines, tell me what you like and what you like about it. And that's kind of, 
you know, through the search process, like, hey, first of all, I want to learn more. So you're you're by far the expert that I know. And I was just first time I had cold brew coffee was with you. That's I just right. wanted to look, you know, what's a piccolo? What's a piccolo? You know, and I just like tell me about this. And that was just <laughs> all of those things. I feel incredibly pl- proud to have been part of your progression, <laughs> at least in this tiny area, but a tiny but important area of life. So what's the current uh, coffee order for you these days, Eric? Um, I got two. In- I knew you might ask about coffee. Um, I still am big on um, single origins. Um, I don't do well with highly acidic coffees and I don't do well with fermented coffees. I just don't yeah. like the funkiness. Um, no. I always go back to South and Central American beans. Um, yeah. I love that chocolatey, sweet, yeah. syrupy. That's just has always been my thing. And I'm with you I, there. Yeah, I can drink those all day. I like tasting different single origins to find where I like the best. It's just never ending quest of is this yeah. one better than the one I had before? They even awesome. had a coffee journal where I keep <laughs> notes of everything. So. But yeah, I've got one. I got a Peruvian coffee from JDC Coffee Roasters. Um, yeah. One of the weirdest, interesting things I've done is I actually bought, and you're, I'm going to lose some street cred with you, but I bought a, at work, I have a super automatic espresso machine. So that yeah, yeah. Didn't have to about grinding and tamping and, yeah. and all those things at work. I actually found one on Craigslist. It's like a $1,000 machine I got for 200 bucks. Wow. And I put that in, I put that in my office. And I was a department chair at the time. I was supervising 15 faculty members. And I would just, it became, my office became the hub. That people would come down, grab a coffee, you know, and of course it's nice just to push the button and it grinds it, tamps it, and, and, and presses it out. And, and so I kind of got to known as the espresso guy on campus and they would, people would come by. And my thing is that, um, you'd have to buy beans um, you'd have to contribute to beans and they'd have to have certain criteria. It can't be older than two weeks old, has to be yeah. single origin, can't be all these things. And it eventually led to faculty, some of the, some of the interested faculty members, we would find the top 25 roasters in the United States. We'd order beans from them and try them, you know? <laughs> so that's kind of how we tasted so many. So I got a JBC coffee roaster, a Peruvian coffee, which was, um, JBC's consistently one of the top 25 yeah. roasters in the United States. It's in Madison, Wisconsin. And then I picked up a Brazilian coffee from Red Band Coffee Makers. Uh, Red Band is actually in Davenport, Iowa. Oh, you know, wow. So it's Palmer and it's, um, they have, it's a Brazilian with tasting notes of brown sugar, toffee, cocoa. So if I see those, I'm going to buy that all day long. Um, really enjoyed that Brazilian one, even though they're not a top 25 coffee roaster, but it's a great coffee, local coffee roaster. You should find them. You should support them. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said. You, you mentioned along there that not older than two weeks. I think there's, so with coffee, coffee, you know, is an organic product. So it goes stale. And I remember the, the hearing this thing, the, the rule of eights, which is, you know, you basically want to have the beans within eight weeks of being, they want to be roasted within eight weeks of being picked. They want to yeah. then want to... Um, use them within eight days of being roasted and then you want to uh, use the the ground coffee within eight seconds of being ground because 
the the oxidation is the enemy of good coffee. Yeah. Um, so yeah, certainly local makes all of that a whole lot easier. So you know the the place that I go is certainly not you know one of the top twenty roasters in Australia, but it's two hundred meters from my house, and they are pretty passionate about it. So I'm I'm like you, I. I look at the, the really prestigious ones and sometimes I'll get them, but often I'm just going to support the people who are super local who are interested in coffee as well. So machine-wise, what are you using these days? Have you still I got your have, super automatic? Well, actually, yeah, I got a Gaggia, super automatic. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, nice machine. Yeah, Very I nice. have one at home. Uh, I got a standard at home, but I just, it's so much convenient here. Oh, just yeah. to turn around, press the button. Grinds I look in, in the age of Nespresso, I'm not critical at all with the super super automatic. I'm sort of like, yeah, whatever, whatever makes <laughs> it accessible. Um, all right, so we've had a little coffee detour. Um, so we mentioned that there are a whole lot of, I guess, sort of chiropractic-specific influences. Sort of more broadly, outside of chiropractic, are there people or books or things that you feel have been particularly influential on your path along there? You know, I, I think I'd be remiss. There's two people. Well, there's three people that really have been influential in my career. Um, we talked about the chiropractic ones. I talked about, you know, for chiropractic philosophy, Dr. Robson, Dr. Fred Barge, Dr. Reggie Gold. Um, I think another person who's had big influence on me chiropractically is Dr. Gilles Lamarche. Um, yeah. he's kind of taught me, he's the most positive person I've ever been around yeah, and I'm yeah. kind of inherently a cynical person. So Dr. Lamarche reminds me to be a better person, you know, sometimes than I want to be at the, at the moment. Um, but he's a think, just to flesh ahead. that out a little bit. So, um, Dr. Lamarche <laughs> is also at life, uh, yeah. And he was, I guess, central to running Parker seminars for years, had a phenomenally successful practice in Canada. Again, another uh, amazing speaker um, who uh, it's just a treat to listen to. But again, I would echo your experience with Gilles where a lot of those people if you around the seminar circuit look really impressive from the stage but then when you get closer to them yeah they're still impressive people maybe but there's elements of it that you sort of go oh that's that doesn't accord with the image that you have yeah. whereas Gilles one of those people where the closer you get the more impressive he is in terms of his just willingness to contribute his positivity his just his love for people and the profession is just really quite impressive. Yeah. And it comes to positive psychology. I've met lots of people who fake it till they make it and you can see yeah. that it's an act and with Jill, it's just not an act. It's just who no. he is, yeah. you know, and I've always admired that about him. Um, yeah. Outside of chiropractic, you know, I, I lost both of my parents last year yeah. and I can heavily, heavily, you know, going back home, going to the visitations and stuff um, that kind of brought all this wholeness back to me. And I can strongly see the influence that my, my parents had that mm -hmm. I probably didn't recognize it at the time. Um, my parents, my dad was a seventh, I would have been seventh generation green farmer. So my dad would have been sixth. Wow. Uh, so just, you know, an hour and a half South of Davenport, Iowa, grew up on a green farm I was the first in my school to go, in my fa immediate family, uh, to go to college. 
um, my everyone just stays in the area, you know, mm -hmm. it's just like working on the farm or working near the farm or whatever it may be. Um, my dad was big on integrity mm -hmm. and I didn't realize what a strong influence that had, you know, it's um, probably a little bit of a, I call it a very Protestant upbringing. Mm -hmm. Do, you know, if you're, if your neighbor's sick, you take out their crops before you take out your own. Yeah. If it's kind of a selfless type of things where you give people a shirt off your back, um, you know, help a neighbor in need. And my dad was just probably one of the nicest, integritist guys I've ever met, you know, and it was just funny because um, I didn't realize how much it's integrity is my biggest, I guess, core value. Yeah. And you, you mentioned it earlier, Martin. It's like, um, you know, if I if someone's out of integrity with me or if I know they purposely have done something uh, to me out of with not being integrity, yeah. you know, with integrity, I, I can't cannot let it go. I cannot yeah. see past it. Um, I have a this person I was uh, mentoring when I was at Parker and she's like, man, if someone rings your bell, they, you just can't unring it, can you? And I'm like, no, you know, and it's just that you just, you treat people the right way, you know? And it was funny going back because I, when I went to the farm and, and after my mom passed in early the year, my dad later in the year, and my mom's was expected, but not my dad. And, you know, when we were going through the visitation, it was during the height of COVID. So we had this drive-by visitation. And it was really cool because all of a sudden there's just a parade of antique tractors. Yeah, that, that was awesome. I saw the photos of that. And, it was just, yeah. And what also was cool was the farmers stopped and they lined up all their implements on the road to pay tribute. And it's just like, that's so, you know, it's like, that's what you do. It's like my mm -hmm. brother, I just remember my brother saying, if you pay your respects, it's the proper thing to do. And yeah. having that, my, you know, that influence my family and that, that doing things the right way um, has been very advantageous in my career. And, and quite frankly, Martin, you and I have been involved in a lot of politics in the profession. It's also come at a hindrance yeah. um, because not everyone plays above the table in, in chiropractic in politics in general. You know, I don't yeah. do well with Machiavellian people that the end justifies the means to me you always do things the right way and the mean the ends will take care of themselves so yeah. that's very strong i didn't realize how strong that was but i i don't think i'm going to let that go out of my my leadership game so to speak uh the other one's my wife yvonne um we kind of grew up together but she's you know the phd in sociology i didn't know that i was going to pursue academia as a career path and, and how much of an influence her sociological viewpoint and just she would have in my overall career. It's been great to kind of see things. Yvonne can see things very clearly. Um, I'm like, I like people until you prove me wrong. Yvonne's got a much better radar of who to stay away from and who not. Cause I, to me, it's like, you're supposed to like people until they give you a reason not to. Yeah. She's like, I told you you could have avoided that person initially. And I'm like, sorry. I, you know, how am I supposed to <laughs> so I kind of go through on this, you know, good old farm boy kind of background. It's still there. It still plays. It's part of my identity. Um, so my parents, the upbringing that my family has and how important family is and integrity and, and probably servant leadership comes yeah. from them. 
Um, I think the thing that I've always struggled as a leader is I, I do like a little bit of recognition. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me, you know, if I focus on service, recognition comes, but we all like that. Rec- I like that recognition a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, particularly when you have people patting you on the back, you kind of get used to it, kind of miss it when it's not there sometimes. So, um, you know, just that ability to kind of focus on serving and, and grounding myself back onto that, you know, Yvonne's been critical in my development. So I see it come through more when I'm taking my PhD in higher education now. Um, Yvonne's influence has really come through, you know, as far as when I'm studying qualitative methods or quantitative methods, I have her to bounce things off of, and that's just been invaluable. Hey, this is news. I didn't realize you're doing a PhD. Yeah, I when I when I came back from New Zealand, um, you know, there's lots of wins and things I wish I would have done differently, you know, yeah. during my time in New Zealand. I was hoping it would be a 30-year appointment, and then it ended up being two. And, um, you know, when I came back, I had to kind of figure out, okay, so I had experience now, but I, what was I missing? What, how can I further my development? And two things that stood out to me is I probably need more credentials. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked on an MBA and gotten an MBA because that helps me with budgets. Yeah. And then I started a PhD because it's going to be, you know, that's one of the things that were held against me numerous times when I was president. It's like, well, you're not a PhD. You don't know science. You don't know whatever. So I decided to, if I was ever going to put myself in a position of leadership again, or potentially, um, then getting a PhD would be critical in that. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Awesome. So what stage of the PhD are you up to? Oh, I am probably 20, I am 24 credit hours in. So okay. um, I still have a couple more years of coursework and then just write that dissertation. Just, just write that dissertation. Yeah. That. Just, <laughs> wow, what a journey. That's awesome. That's super cool. Um, so if we kind of, if I rewind a little bit what I've heard us discuss is that in terms of your kind of your journey generally you came from a family that had some very very solid values that have created a a, a sort of a path of integrity and some attitudes around hard work and importance of family etc and then you've come into chiropractic and then almost sort of got through chiropractic college with a, a having juggling some of those other values where you know you had family commitments that you needed to attend to that meant that to some degree you dove into the hard work part of it which is the getting really good at a technique part but then looped back around really looking for how do I emulate people that you're seeing who are passionate and excited about the profession and that's taken you down the philosophy path um, in terms of the impact and then you've I guess sort of found your calling in terms of um, sharing the ideas and distinctions that you've made with students is there a particular impact that if there are there I know that it's a big big question and there's probably many ideas but is there at a high level, a particular perspective that you're looking to to, to have? Is there a, an influence that you're trying to have on the profession or on the world? Yeah, you know, for me, it's like how you want to serve. I just want to serve in the biggest capacity that I can to make the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to chiropractic philosophy, uh, I kind of alluded to it earlier and I got sidetracked, you know, um, but it was 
Chiropractic philosophy is not practice management. Chiropractic philosophy is not motivation. No. Um, but people speak on, when they speak on motivation or practice management, they'll claim they're doing chiropractic philosophy. And it kind of muddies what chiropractic philosophy is. Um, so I've always been kind of a um, get to basics. And mm -hmm. whether it be like that Regigold CDs or whatever it is, it's like, my job is to teach students, I am the classics. I am the classic theorist. I am not a contemporary theory guy, but Dr. David Koch here at Life University yeah. is contemporized and added to. I am kind of the brass tacks, basics, return to basics. And if you're lost, return to basics. Because so many times in my career, when I kind of get confused on a topic, I'll go back to Stevenson's, reread Stevenson's. It's like, oh, there it is. You know, and then come back to it. So I don't mind chiropractic philosophy being challenged. I don't mind it being developed. But so many people don't even understand what it is. And they make these, you know, generalizations of chiropractic. Um, you know, it really bothers me when we go to academic conferences. They're like, well, all vitalistic chiropractors pre and post x-ray every visit and put people on a thousand, you know, patient visit plans. And this make these wide sweeping generalizations when they really don't know what it is, you know, and, and not taking the time to learn what it is. Um, the irony again, is that most of the people who do that claim to be uh, evidence-based, but will make yeah. those claims with, with uh, zero or one anecdotal experience as their evidence. But anyway, we move on. Yeah, and oftentimes it was something that happened in chiropractic school that made them not like chiropractic philosophy. And it may have been a bad interaction with the teacher. Um, you know, I think some people are geared towards it, but science and philosophy is never meant to be mutually exclusive. They're, they're no. wrapped together. And the biggest thing I've learned from my PhD is your research question drives what evidence you use. Yes. So if you use, if I want to study range of motion, I need to get an inclinometer, you know, but yeah. if I, I tell students, I'm like, if I want to measure length of a rose, you use a ruler. I want to measure weight of a rose, you use a scale. If you want to measure beauty of a rose, you better use something different than a, a ruler or a yeah. scale. And I stole that from Yvonne, by the way. So, um, and it's just, but your research question drives what evidence you'll use. And I think people have a hard time with the fact that, you know, chiropractic philosophy is abstract concepts. They're not ever designed to fit the hierarchy of evidence base. And no. they weren't meant to. And, and you to try to force it to is a bad proposition. Uh, I remember Dr. Dana Lawrence, when he first started at Parker University, came by my office to get um, an espresso because he heard I had an espresso machine. And Dr. Lawrence is a typical, you know, he's a journal editor for GMPT for a number of years, very much an, an elite evidence-based guidelines chiropractor. I just remember sitting there going, uh, Dr. Lawrence, can, can a vitalistic chiropractor be evidence-based? He's like, of course. Yeah. And I'm like, we'll get along just fine. And we did. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> there's no issue. So I wouldn't stand in front of a, an academic conference and then start talking about, you know, flames coming out of my piezoform and, and rising the dead from chiropractic. So I think returning to basics is very important. It's not... You know, chiropractic philosophy is not who's the loudest person in the room. It's not, um, I told students, if I wanted to be popular in chiropractic philosophy, I would give a Southern revival type of lecture 
I would have kiss concert type of pyrotechnics, yeah. you know, and I would be banned from, I would figure out a way to be banned from campus. If I combined <laughs> those three things, I would be the popular chiropractic philosophy person you've ever met, but that's not what chiropractic philosophy is. You know, there's a quote within Stevenson's that says, it's just a, it's not Greek philosophy. It's just a sliver of what philosophy is, but it's enough to devote your entire life to. So for me, I am a basics. I am classics. You know, people, I don't care if people can, if they want to accept it, reject it, contemporize it, but they have to understand what it is first. And that's yeah. kind of their mission. Wow. That's, well, you're certainly uh, having a large impact in that realm then. So, um, Eric, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to share your journey and your thoughts with us. The, the mission of the, the podcast is to really help people learn from phenomenal, phenomenally influential people like you. And uh, I feel very privileged to have known you over the years and learned from you and really want to thank you for taking the time to share with us. Oh, thank you so much, Martin. It's an honor to share any stage with you, and I, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Excellent. Thanks, buddy. Catch you soon. If you enjoyed today's episode, then you will love the Mastering Daily Interactions online workshop. It's a three-part online workshop that will show you an exact framework that you can use on every visit to make sure that your patients or clients are getting that drip, drip, drip feed of information that will help them create a greater connection to the understanding at the core of chiropractic. You see, the truth of it is that people change beliefs or learn new beliefs gradually and they learn them based on their experience so you can have the best reported findings in the world but if you don't have that reinforcement over time of a specific efficient structure that allows you to connect and create individualized value on every visit then you're never going to get as good a results so check out the mastering daily interactions website at insideoutpractices.com